It's good to see each of you this evening. I invite your attention to Luke, the 16th chapter. Luke 16. We're going to talk about some about the rich man and Lazarus tonight. And we're going to stand, uh, talk about it from the standpoint of lessons to be learned from this story. And you know, one of the things that's characteristic of the stories of the gospel, the records, and incidents that are recorded in the gospel, is that uh, they have a lot of connection with each other. And of course, that's understandable. Most everything that we preach and teach has connection with each other because it has to do with God's Word and what, how He wants us to live and so forth. But the early part of this 16th chapter first tells us about the story of the unjust steward who misused his master's estate and then had to, had to answer for it. And then before we get down to the story of rich man and Lazarus, he turns his attention to the Pharisees. And it says that they love money. And of course, that has, that has a connection with the story concerning the rich man and Lazarus. We often think of this scripture, I think, only from the standpoint of talking about death and where we go when we die. But there's more to it than that. There are other lessons, important lessons, that we can learn from the record that's given here in Luke 16, beginning at verse 19. And the first part of this, let's read verses 19 through 23. There was a certain man, rich man, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by angels, by the angels, to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died also and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off, Lazarus in his bosom. And one of the things that this we learn from this is that we're going to die physically. We're going to die whether we're rich or poor. It's appointed to all to die once, we're told. And after this, the judgment. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, refers to that. So both the rich and the poor will end up in death. And they will both go to Hades. The name Hades, it's in the Old King James Version, translated hell. But the original word is the word Hades, and it does not refer to the final place of punishment. 
But other passages, like the passages that talk about Jesus, that his soul would not be left in Hades, or in Sheol, as it was stated in the Old Testament, Hades in the New Testament, tells us that both the, both the righteous and the unrighteous go to Hades. But this story that we're studying from tonight, of course, tells us that there are two parts of that realm. There's part where righteous spirits go and where evil spirits go. And that evil spirit cult, the uh, righteous part, first of all, the righteous part of that Hadean realm is referred to, even in this context, as Abraham's bosom. It is referred to in other passages as paradise. Jesus said today to the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He was not going to where the rich man was. Jesus wasn't. And he's promising that uh, man that was crucified by him because of the faith that he manifested in Jesus and asked to be remembered when he came into his kingdom, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. There's the word in Second Peter, the second chapter, I believe it is, at verse 4, that talks about Tartarus, that the evil angels that are in Tartarus, and of course that's not an English word, that's really a transliteration, evidently, of the original word, and so that's the same place that's referred to as Hades in this passage, the part of Hades where the, where the rich man went, the man that was not prepared for eternity. And so there's one, there's one general area to which all go, but they don't go to the same part of that area. And also this teaches us beginning at uh, picking up there again at verse 23, and being in torments, that is, the rich man, when he had died, being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things. You received your good things and, Laz and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And beside all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And this tells us that there is no changing of our circumstances, of our spiritual circumstances after we die. That's settled. 
completely at the moment we die. And we either go to the place where the rich man was in punishment, or we go to Abraham's bosom or to paradise, where Abraham was. And furthermore, it tells us that in this, in both of these realms, there will be rich people and poor people, and all between. All rich people don't go to the bad place. And one of the, one of the proofs of that is, is where is Abraham in this picture? He's in paradise. He's, he's the one that's described as Abraham's bosom and the, and Lazarus has died and gone into Abraham's bosom, which is a good place. Place where the righteous spirits go at death. So there will be rich people in the place of torment and there will be rich people in paradise. And we have not only Abraham, but we have, we have records, of course, of people who are very acceptable and righteous in the sight of God, spoken of in the Scriptures. Of course, many of those people, just like everybody else, many of those people in that situation, in that situation died. And they, they have gone to this place. And each of us, of us, whether we're rich or poor, when we die, we will go into one of these places. And that cannot be changed after we die. That tells us something about one of the false teachings that we find in the religious world. Some people talk about purgatory. Well, how did they describe purgatory? Well, simply put, it's a place where, according to some religions teaching, it's a place where if you're not really prepared to go to heaven, when you die, you go to pur purgatory, and if you have enough prayers made for you and enough done for you by those that you have left behind that they can work your way out of that place and you will go to heaven in the end. Well, the Bible says absolutely nothing about that sort of thing. There's only two places, and those places are named in this passage as well, of course, as heaven and hell, the final places of reward for righteousness and punishment for the evildoers. But someone says, well, I just can't believe that God would put punish anybody with eternity in hell. It's interesting to me that people hold that position. At the same time, they believe that we have a right today to punish people who commit certain crimes or commit crimes, any crimes, to be punished, but even some of those to be punished with death. If we're going to accuse God of being unjust, how could we ever, how could we ever 
justify ourselves in punishing someone because they did something wrong, committed some kind of crime here upon earth. And the next question I raise concerning that is, if anybody goes to hell, when, when a person, the person that goes to hell, why, who's responsible for him going there? Well, somebody says, God will see that he goes there. Well, that may be. But that's like saying, who's responsible for a person spending his life in prison or being put to death for the crime that he has committed? Somebody says, well, the court is responsible for that. Is that really true? No. The person who committed the crime, who made the choice to do what he does, is the one that is responsible for that. And the same principle is true with regard to our eternal punishment and reward. We make the choice. God has plainly taught us in his word that there are two ways of life, that there are two ways to go. And he, and we all, of course, we all become sinners, and he has provided a way for everyone who desires that and will submit to God's way he has so graciously and lovingly through the gift of his own son to die that terrible death of crucifixion to pay the price, to pay the penalty for our sins and open the door for us to live in heaven throughout eternity. And he says, and he begs us, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And the He's pleased with us throughout the scriptures to do that, to live the right kind of life and to live a life of faith and a life of forgiveness as we depend upon him throughout our lives for forgiveness. But you know, there are many people who have the idea that as long as they live a relatively pretty good life, surely God will take me to heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. Not at all. We're all sinners. And nobody is going to earn their way into heaven by keeping a greater list of good deeds than of evil deeds. No more than the principle. that person commits murder and goes before the court of law and he and his lawyer argue this is the only violation of the law. He has lived a good life other than this crime that he committed. He ought to be let go because no, that doesn't fly, does it? It doesn't fly in, with regard to the teaching of the scriptures either. So who is responsible if we go to eternal torment? Who is responsible for that decision? Each individual is. Because God has provided the way to escape from that 
situation. And we need to listen to that. But to me, one of the great lessons, they're all good lessons, but one of the very important lessons is contained in the latter part of this story. Verse 27, Then he said, that is the rich man who was in torment, Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, Father Abraham, that you would send him, that is Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Who was right? Was the rich man right about this or was Abraham, Father Abraham, right about it? Of course, we all know who was right about it. But keep in mind the lessons that we can learn. The rich man pleaded with Abraham to send Lazarus to influence his brothers not to come to this place. But you don't go back. First place, you don't go back unless you're raised from the dead. There have been a few along the way that have been raised for the dead for from the dead for a while. Jesus forever, but he's sitting at God's right hand. He's going to be the judge. And so the, the rich man wants help in convincing his brothers. But think, think about this also. Have you ever known anybody? And you know, we, a lot of times we don't know because somebody has specifically said this, but it's pretty easy many times to figure out what's going on. Somebody, somebody's folks pass on. And whatever religion they were, the children that are left seem to think that they would be greatly dishonoring their parents upon when they learn the truth and learn what God has taught them to do to become Christians. They cannot bring themselves to do that because they, that would dishonor their parents. And they're not going to dishonor their parents is the attitude that some people have. Yes. That fixed it. I could not hear that up here. Thank you for reminding me of that, telling me that. But think about what this man that's died 
this rich man that's in torment. He's in the wrong place. Now, first of all, let me say this. If, you're, if a person's folks are in the good place, in heaven, or in the uh, paradise, the part of Hades, preparing to go to heaven after the second coming of Christ, even if they are in heaven, What do they want all of us to do? What do they want their loved ones back here on earth? What does this, what does this passage teach us about that? This is not somebody just wondering about what... This, this is an inspired story of what actually takes place. They're interested in our going to heaven. But on the other hand, if even if, uh, you know, if you say, well, Brother Leon, you, what you teach, and the emphasis that you place, that probably puts my folks, and please understand, we don't preach this. I've had a lot of people say, oh, you think, you think my parents or you think my loved one is, is going to go to hell? Well, God is the judge. I can only preach and teach what God teaches us. And I know that God tells us in, by the way we lived and whether we obey the gospel or not, whatever, what we do in order to receive the forgiveness of our sin, we can find out what He says about that. And He says that's absolutely essential for us to go to heaven. That is, if we, if we are people who have the intelligence now, little babies, they're not sinners. And people who never develop in their mentality to be responsible for their own actions, their own choices, they'll spend eternity in, he in heaven. We don't have to be concerned about them. Incidentally, that's one of the things when people make the argument about God, make the argument against God, because of those Old Testament stories about him destroying whole nations of people because of their wickedness. Well, if he destroyed all the parents that were so wicked in that, what would have happened to the children? Now, looking at it from our perspective, that looks, you know, that's not an easy thing for us to think about and to talk about. But the instant... God destroyed all of those idolatrous, sinful people who even sacrificed their own children to the false gods. As soon as those parents and those children were destroyed, what happened to the children? They went to be with God. They didn't have to live in this old sin-cursed earth anymore. God took them home with Him. No, they weren't totally depraved like some folks teach. Little children are not condemned. They don't come into this world condemned by Adam's sin being transferred to them. The Bible doesn't teach that. So, back to the point here. One thing that we need to understand, regardless, and all of us have loved ones, of course, that differed in religion, differed in religious belief. 
not everybody, you know, we can't have, we can't believe contradictory doctrine. And both of us be right. Both of us might be wrong. But both of, both of us can't be right if we are on opposite sides of something that the Bible talks about and commands and teaches. So it's a very, it's, it's a very unreasonable thing, really. For us to have the attitude that I'm not going to, I'm not going to do what I now know that the Lord teaches me I ought to do to become a Christian. And how to live as a Christian because that would say, that would indicate that I don't believe my parents are going to heaven. When, just like the rich man, you can depend upon it if your folks, no matter which situation they're in, they want you to go to heaven. And this man, this rich man proved it. He wanted Lazarus to be sent to warn his brothers not to come to the place where he was. I think that's one of the great lessons that we, that we learn from this, uh, from this story. But the rich man argued, he made an argument then, when Father Abraham told him, he said, well, that's, that's not going to happen. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. We have a problem with regard to that today. We still have people today that have the attitude, well, this, is not, this by itself is not good enough. We've got to have a direct, some kind of direct operation upon us for us to even have the ability to do what God wants us to do. I'm waiting on, I, I had a young man tell me one time, he said, what you're teaching me sounds so reasonable and logical. He said, I've been taught all of my life that I, I must wait on God to do something more than he's already done in order for me to know that he's calling me to salvation. I said, don't, don't fall into that trap. Because Satan is there. He's the one that's working on that. He's the one that's teaching that. Do what God tells you to do. Somebody said, oh, but we've got to have the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I'm waiting on the Holy Spirit. Well, who do you think gave us this? This is the divine revelation given by the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit guided these men who wrote this book. When you open this book to read these words, you're reading the words of God. Delivered to us. This is the message of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the great divine revealer. That's why Jesus said to his apostles, Howbeit when he the Holy Spirit he when he the Spirit of truth is come, he will guide you. He's talking to the apostles. He doesn't talk to people in general, he's talking to the apostles. He will guide you into all truth. And he did that. And, of course, the apostles 
the Lord provided for the apostles to lay hands upon certain people and gave them the power to speak under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, but they could not lay their hands on somebody else and give them the power. That power ended with the apostles and those upon whom the apostles had laid hands. Well, then we don't have what they yes. We have it recorded right here. Everything that we need is recorded in these pages of the Bible, especially in, with regard to the work of salvation in Christ Jesus in the New Testament scriptures. So the rich man said, they'll believe if you'll send someone from the dead. Was that true? Was he preaching the truth there in what he was saying? I have a question. Many of the chief rulers believed on Jesus. John 12, 42 and 43. Many of the chief rulers of the Jews believed on Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Was their problem that they just didn't have enough information? They didn't know what they ought to do? No. And another passage that's always impressed me in Acts, the fourth chapter. You remember what was going on after the church first got started, first begun? The apostles were preaching. And by Acts 4, they were, to get, they were getting opposition. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that is the Jewish leaders, <clears throat> when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. And when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Did you hear that? And we, they said, these men have performed notable miracles, and we cannot deny it. But then what? But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God you judge, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since, all, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. You say, what do you think about the honesty of those folks? You think those are the kind of folks that are going to listen to God? 
Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And they still didn't believe. The tomb was empty. They could not produce the body of Jesus. And these men were performing miracles to prove that their message was true. And yet they said, we'll have nothing to do with it. We're going to oppose it. Don't listen to those who discredit in any way. Your soul is too precious, even in God's sight. He wants you to be saved. But he's not going, he wants all of us to be saved, but he's not going to force it upon us. He gives us the decision as to whether we're going to receive it or not. So what does this say about people who know the truth and yet do not want to do that which they think will disappoint their loved ones? This scripture shows us that even if they are in the wrong place, in the bad place, they're wanting us to believe and obey the truth. They want us to go to heaven. And that principle applies to me, and you, and everybody. We all have to take this word, check it against what we've been taught, and what we believe, and make sure that we are following, believing the truth, and obeying the truth. And if you're subject to the invitation of the Lord tonight, Angels in heaven would rejoice. We're told that plainly in the story of the prodigal son. And those stories in connection with that in Luke 15. The angels in heaven will rejoice when we come to him to receive salvation. If you need to respond to the invitation tonight, come as together we stand and sing. Someday you'll record and see Someday you'll answer the question of life What will your answer be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? and free, washed in the blood of the crucified one.